Well, good morning again, Redeemer. My name is Chris Lejeune, and I serve as one of the pastors here at the church. Uh, just two very quick announcements that I would just like to highlight before we get started this morning. First of all, starting next week, Sunday, so that's August the 6th, at 9 o'clock, we're going to be making use of the diaphorums where we usually have our Redeemer Kids meeting. And from 9 until 10, so that hour kind of before the, the church service, we're going to just be gathering together for a time of prayer. We have those rooms available to us, and we just thought that over these next four Sundays in August, we're going to take that time to gather together to pray together. We're going to be praying through the psalm that is going to be preached. So starting next week, that means we'll be praying through Psalm 32, and we will be praying for the church service as a whole. So let me encourage you, come and join us next week, Sunday, 9 a.m., upstairs in the Diafra rooms. That's the third floor, so you just go to the... The elevators, which are just there, press number three. As you walk out, you'll see some stairs. Head up those stairs, go through the doors on the left, and that's where we'll be. So let me encourage you to join us there next week, Sunday, August 6th at 9 a.m. Then the other thing I want to highlight, which Erwin uh, mentioned a little bit earlier, is that in two weeks' time, that's August 12th, uh, sorry, August 13th, from 12.30 p.m. until 6 p.m., we're going to be having our next membership class. This is an opportunity that if you've uh, been attending Redeemer for a while and you're not yet a member or maybe you're, you're brand new to the church, this is an opportunity for you to come and find out who we are, who we are as a church, what we believe, what we are about. Let me encourage you, if you have your bulletin with you, flip very, to the very last page, you'll see that there is a link, redeemerdubai.com forward slash membership, and you can register there. Um, yeah, you will hear from some staff and elders. You'll hear the history of the church. Uh, you'll hear about the, the, the distinctives about us as a church as well. Um, and uh, we will also be providing lunch. However, we cannot provide childcare at this time. This registration doesn't cost you anything. Uh, it doesn't guarantee membership. It doesn't automatically make you a member, but it is the first step in the membership process. And if you're someone who uh, desires to be baptized, this is also the first step in that process. So let me encourage you, sign up, register. That's for two weeks' time, August 13th, 12.30 p.m. to 6 p.m. That'll be in the Majlis, so out those back doors, off to the right, and you'll find us there uh, in two weeks' time. Now, as we turn our attention to the preaching of God's Word, let us pray together. Oh, Father God, we thank you again, this, this privilege that we have of gathering together in this place to sing your praises, to, to bring our praise and worship to you. Father, I pray that that would be something that we do not take for granted today. I pray that as we consider this passage this morning, as we consider what it means to, to shout for joy in the Lord, what it means to, to, to praise you, Lord, that we would do that each and every day with a joyful heart, with a new song that is on our lips as we experience your grace and mercy anew. Father, I pray that as we leave this place today, having studied your word, having celebrated communion, Father, I pray that we would walk away in awe of who you are, giving you all the honor and glory and praise that you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen.
how big is your God? Or perhaps an, another way to ask the question is this. How does your view of God shape how you live your life? You see, however you view God is going to impact you on how you live your life. It shapes the decisions you make. It shapes the things that you worship. And ultimately, how you view God shapes how you view this life and how you will view eternity. In our psalm this morning, we see the, psalm, the psalmist paint this beautiful picture of who God is and why that should cause us to rejoice, why that should cause us to praise. Not only that, we will see that why a right view of God will shape how we are to live our lives. So if you haven't already done so, let me encourage you to turn to Psalm 33 that Elise just read for us. Psalm 33 is generally considered to be uh, the second part of Psalm 32. This is a psalm that Dr. T.J. Smith will be preaching for us next week. One of the key reasons for this is because uh, there's, there's no superscript to the psalm. There's no introduction to say that it's a psalm of David or to say that there was a specific time or event that led to the writing of this psalm. Whereas Psalm 32 tells us that this is a, that is a masculine of David. Second, the psalm, the psalm that we're looking at today, Psalm 33, seems to actually pick up right where Psalm 32 uh, finishes. So in Psalm 32, 11, we read, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright at heart. And then we get to Psalm 33, 1. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. And as you read Psalm 32 and Psalm 33 together, it does seem that Psalm 33 is in many ways a response to, to what's just happened in Psalm 32. A psalm that deals with forgiveness. Now, we could spend loads of time unpacking that and just seeing the intricacies of how they fit together and how they beautifully flow together. But this morning, we will just focus on Psalm 33, which is a psalm of praise. Again, we're remembering that there are, are, are different genres that we see in the psalms. Uh, in week one, we looked at a psalm of trust. Last week, we looked at a psalm of lament. And this morning, we will be looking at a psalm of praise. To help us think through this text, to help us think through the passage, we're going to be looking at three points that's going to serve as our outline this morning. Three points. Point number one, the call to praise, verses one to three. Second point, the reason to praise, verses 4 to 19. And then thirdly, the hope in our praise, verses 20 to 22. The call to praise, the reason to praise, and the hope in our praise. So with all that as our backdrop, let's take a look at these first three verses this morning. And let's consider that first point, the call to praise. <laughs> Verse 1, shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. The psalm begins with a call to worship, calling the righteous, calling the people of God to come and praise the Lord. 
as is fitting for him and him alone. This is not a, a shout of, of, of struggle. This is not a, a shout of anger or angst or anguish. This is a shout for joy, a shout of exuberance. And as we see here with the word righteous, it is the people of God that are to come before him in praise. Why? Because praise befits the upright. The psalmist is saying that praise is the appropriate response of those who are the people of God, of those that call him Lord. This is why we have a call to worship every Sunday. That's what Erwin led us in the first year this morning. It's calling God's people to come before the Lord, to worship Him in spirit and truth, to make a joyful noise to Him, to prepare their hearts to bring Him praises. Now before we continue and look at the rest of our passage, there's an important thing that I want us to take note of here. We need to pay attention to these two words, righteous and upright. The psalmist is saying that it's only the people of God, it is only his people that can shout for joy in the Lord. It's only his people that can ultimately praise him. I mean truly praise him in a God-honoring, God-glorifying way. The only ones who can do that are his people. In this context of the psalm, that would have been the people of Israel, God's chosen people. But today, the question we need to ask is, well, who is that? Who would that be? Who are the righteous? Who are the upright? I mean, especially when you get to a passage like Romans 3 that says, no one is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Who then is righteous? Who is righteous if, as this passage says, there isn't any? Friends, before we get into the rest of the psalm, we need to answer this question because having the right answer to this shapes everything that comes next. Being righteous is not something that we can do in our own strength. It's not something that we can do within ourselves. As we've just seen, there is no one righteous. No one does good. No one seeks after God. For those that are called righteous, for those that are the people of God, our righteousness is based on the work and the merit of someone else, and that's Christ. You see, Christ came to earth, the second person of the Trinity, the second person of the Godhead, to restore what had been corrupted, what had been broken from the rebellion of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Christ lived a perfect, sinless life. He was in full obedience to the Father. Where Adam and Eve fell into temptation, where they rejected God, we see that Christ was tempted in every way and yet was without sin. 
As the one who was completely sinless, he then went and freely offered himself as a sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice on our behalf, being nailed to the cross, bearing the punishment that our sin deserves, experiencing the full wrath of God upon himself so that those who would trust in his work, those who would trust in what he had accomplished would never have to experience that wrath. Having breathed his last, he was laid in the tomb, and on the third day was raised again, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Our hope of being righteous, our hope of being upright, to be able to come before the Lord to sing his praises, means that we need to repent. We need to turn from our sin, turn from seeking to be our own kings our own rulers, and trusting that what God has done through Christ is not only sufficient, but is our only hope for salvation, of being declared righteous. Friends, if you haven't done that, if you haven't repented, if you haven't turned towards Christ, let me encourage you, do that now. Don't wait, don't waste time. Put your faith and trust in Christ You don't get to lay claim to God. You don't get to call him Lord. You don't get to call him Father until you do that. Until you turn from your sin. Until you turn from self-worship, of self-reliance, and turn to Christ. Jesus himself says that no one can come to the Father but through him. Friends, turn to him. Find your rest in him. Enter into the joy of your master. Enter into the joy of worshiping this God. Only then can we do what the next verse calls us to, verse two. Only then can we give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Only then can we make melody to him with the harp of 10 strings. These two instruments were really representative of an entire orchestra that would have been used in praise. The psalmist is painting this picture for us that it's not just a a one-man band trying to rally everyone up. No, this is everyone coming together, the whole congregation coming before the Lord to praise Him. Verse three, to sing to Him a new song, play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Those that are gathered are to sing a new song to the Lord. Now, that is not suggesting that you are to compose a new song every time you come before the Lord. I'm not saying, as I said to Dave Domingo earlier, that we expect him to write a new song for every Sunday, although, Dave, that would be great. Rather, the idea here is that singing a new song was a reflective response to experiencing God's grace anew. A song that corresponds to the worthiness of its subject. It would be as one commentator says, be heavenly, eternal, and God-centered. It would be reflective of a redeemed heart. I wonder if you've ever considered that, that every time you come to church on a Sunday, it is an opportunity to praise God anew, to praise Him afresh, praise Him for His sustaining grace through the week, praise Him for something new that you may have seen in your quiet time this week. Praise Him for something that He has done in somebody else's life. 
because God is worthy of it. Each and every Sunday is an opportunity to sing a new song to the Lord, to praise Him, to give Him thanks. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. You know, to play skillfully means that it's not just about making any, any old noise, not just about clashing cymbals together. No, the music was to, to sound meaningful. It, it's meant to, to harmonize. This is why when we gather on Sunday, the music team don't just get up just before 10.30 and start playing together. No, they've taken the time to, to, to practice together, to rehearse, to, to reflect on what the passage is going to be about. And then they come here again in the morning to, and they rehearse again from the early hours of the morning to, to make sure that when we worship together, it is a beautiful noise to the Lord that is harmonious, that it works well, that they are facilitating the opportunity for us to worship together. Friends, when you come here on a Sunday, let your praise be worthy of its object. Let your praise be worthy of God. Having called people to worship, the psalmist then goes on to start describing just who God is. And starts giving reasons why God should be praised. Which brings us to our second point, the reason to praise. Look there at verse 4. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. There is always a reason to praise. The reasons are always God-centered. And in this case, the psalmist starts by going to the very word of God. This word of God, his word that is always true, always perfect. Or the word of God always expressing the very best motives of God's heart. It is trustworthy. If there were ever any possibility that the word of God was not holy, not just, not good, not wise, not true, and not pure, as one writer says, then all hope would perish. Friends, do you view the scriptures in that way? The Bible that you carry around, the, the scripture that you have, perhaps even on your devices, does the fact that you have access to God's word, does that cause you to praise him? I'll be honest, this was something that, as I was preparing the sermon, I realized that I take for granted. Perhaps it's the ease of access that we have just on our phones to get various translations in various languages. Perhaps it's made us callous to the value, the beauty, and the majesty that is God's Word. Friends, let's not forget there are people who gave their lives, who were martyrs that we could have the word of God. There are people today who face execution if they are to be found with his word. Now I'm not saying that we are to start worshiping the Bible. We're not to start worshiping it, that would be idolatry. But let the Bible do what it is meant to to point us to the Lord so that we would praise Him. 
For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. Everything that God does, all his actions are praiseworthy. Why? Because he is faithful. God will never act out of character. He will never act in con- contrary to, to who he is. He is unchanging and he will always be consistent with his holy character. Another reason for us to praise him. The psalmist then gives us an example of this unchanging character in verse 5. He loves the righteous. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. You know, if ever we have cause to doubt God's goodness, where we might be tempted to think that those who are corrupt, those who are wicked, just just seem to always get away with it. There just doesn't seem to be this justice. There doesn't seem to be a right justice in this world. There doesn't seem to be a fairness. We are reminded that God loves righteousness. That he loves justice. Therefore, to suggest otherwise would suggest that God would ultimately go against his own character. We know that that doesn't happen. It doesn't mean that there won't be times where the things that we are experiencing are unfair and unjust. But friends, we take hope, we take heart, we take courage, knowing that God will deal with these things appropriately. He will deal with them accordingly, in accordance to his perfect character, and this will again be a reason for us to give him praise. If we're uncertain, if we're uncertain, we just need to look around us. Take a look at creation. You know, when Isaiah has his vision of the Lord, sitting upon a throne, he recounts the words of the seraphim. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. David himself in Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. If you need a reason to praise God, if you need a reason to be reminded of his character, just take a step outside. Marvel at a beautiful sunset and give praise to the Lord. Praise him when a a massive full moon rises. Praise him each and every morning that you open your eyes and you get to look upon the earth that is full of his steadfast love. I would even say praise him when you gather with your loved ones knowing that each of them is a gift from the Lord. Praise Him when you even have to say goodbye to one of them that's passed away. Praise Him for the time that you had together. The earth and the fullness thereof is full of reasons to praise the Lord. Why? Well, verse 6 By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Having given us reason for praise through God's character and through creation, David reminds us just 
who it is that created everything that we see. It is God. He is the creator. David is causing us or at least encouraging us to make sure that we have a right view of God. That the God that we claim to worship, that we claim to know is not a construct of our own imagination. God is the one who created everything, who spoke all things into existence. God is not a statue that is carved and put up on the mantelpiece. No, this is the God who, who gathers the water of the sea. And just like a farmer who stores his grain in, in storehouses, God gathers, the, he's able to gather all the waters of the sea and store them in his storehouses. Friends, is this your God? Is this your view of God? The danger for us is that we can be so quick to say, yes, of course, this is my God. This is the one who's deserving of all the praise. But friends, often how we live our lives suggests that rather we actually have a God of our own design, a God of our own making, a God who bends according to our will, to our desires, who acts how we want. Really, we are the ones who want to be the creators of the universe. Having a right view of God shapes your worship. It shapes the decisions you make. It shapes how you live your life. Are you living your life with God at the front and center of it? The one who spoke all things into creation. Who created everything out of nothing. I mean, think about it. There, there was nothing. There were no cells. There were no atoms. No primordial soup, no, no amoebas just floating into space and, and suddenly becoming two, three, four uh, cells and, and, and living things. No, there was nothing. And then there was something. If this is who God is, then why do we live in fear? Why do we doubt? Why do we seek hope and comfort in everything else but Him? Why do we seek to be the masters of our fate, the captains of our souls? Rather, an appropriate response to, would be to see what we see in verse 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the, inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Friends, do you fear the Lord? Do you stand in awe of who He is? I wish that I could stand here this morning and tell you that I do that each and every single day. That I'm in awe of God, that I rightly fear Him. Friends, I need you to remind me of these truths, to encourage me of these things. There are so many things that, that creep into my mind that, that cause doubt, that cause fear, that cause worry, that cause stress and anxiety. Help me to remember who God is. Help me to have the right view of God, and I promise I will do the same for you as best as I can. That's one of the things that we commit to as members here at Redeemer, to come alongside, to, to encourage and admonish one another when necessary. Friends, let that be true of us as a church. Let us be a church that is truly in awe of who God is. 
Remembering verse nine, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. This is the power that God has. This is the power that he exercises. He speaks and things come into being. He commands and it stands firm. Nothing has failed according to God's will. Nothing has opposed his will or or stood above him. Having this view of God shapes how we live our lives. It shapes the decisions that we make. It was this view of God that shaped the decisions that led to Jim Elliott going to Ecuador to go and reach an unreached people group. It was this view of God that led him along with four others to to seek to to reach these, these Alka Indians, even to the fact that this view of God led to them being martyred. These five men with families, with young children, there in Ecuador to see these people come to faith. This big view of God led to them losing their lives because it was worth it. Because having a right view of God shapes the decisions that you make. It shapes how you live this life and it shapes how you view eternity. It was that same view of God that led Jim's wife, Elizabeth, along with some of the the other widows to continue to pursue these Indians to continue to share the love of Christ with them. And by God's grace, those people came to faith. In fact, one of the men who actually killed one of the guys that was with Jim, Nate Saint was was the pilot who, who threw them in there. This man who killed Nate Saint, it was Nate, he came to faith and essentially adopted Nate Saint's son and raised him. It is a right view of God that shapes how we live our lives, that shapes the decisions that we make, that shapes how we view eternity and shapes how we view each other. It's a right view of God that reminds us that God is over everything, that God is over all creation. And it's not just creation that we're reminded of. In fact, we see... as we see here in verses 10 and 11, that uh, creation and nature act in obedience to God's will because God is over it. But as we're reminded, as Derek Kidner says, we see also see man's blatant defiance when there is a wrong view of God, of who he is. Verses 10 and 11, the, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people's. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plan of his heart to all generations. God rules over everything. There is not a single thing that is outside of his sovereignty, that is outside of his will. He rules it all according to his wisdom, his everlasting counsel. Those that seek to operate outside of his will, who seek to live according to their own sovereignty, who seek their own counsel, who seek their own wisdom, ultimately end up frustrated. Their plans fail. They come to nothing. Whereas in contrast, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. So let me ask you, do you have a right view of God? Who are you turning to? Where are you turning to? 
There is nothing and no one who is able to oppose God, who is able to, to overturn his rules. So why look anywhere else? Why go anywhere else? Verse 12, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. In verse 11, we see that there are those who are against the Lord. We see that they come to nothing. But here in verse 12, those whose God is the Lord are blessed. John Calvin says of this verse, this verse excellently agrees with the preceding because it would profit us little to observe what is said of the stability of God's counsel if that counsel referred not to us. The prophet, therefore, in proclaiming that they are blessed whom God receives into his protection, reminds us that the counsel which he had just mentioned is not a secret which remains always hidden in God, but is displayed in the existence and protection of the church and may there be beheld. Thus we see that it is not those who coldly speculate about the power of God, but those who alone apply it to their own present benefit who rightly acknowledge God as governor of the world. How do we know that? Where do we find that out? We go to his word. Where we're reminded that God is sovereign, that he is over all things and therefore should be praised. David continues to, to paint this glorious picture for us of just who God is. We've seen that his character is praiseworthy. We've seen that as creator of everything, he is praiseworthy. We've seen that he is governing over this world and therefore he is to be praised. Now we are reminded that he is reigning over all from the seat of his throne in heaven and there is nothing that escapes him. Nothing that, that slips by. Verses 13 to 15, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. There is nothing that happens that God does not see. There is nothing that happens that God does not know of. He sees everything. He knows everything. And friend, as you're sitting here this morning, you may be feeling marginalized. You may be feeling that you are being treated unjustly, unfair because of your ethnicity, your country, your background. Friend, take comfort. God sees. He knows. There is not a single one of us that is outside of God's sight. No one can escape his perfect vision. And he rules over all things according to his sovereign purposes. Even in the midst of strife, of trying circumstances, you can praise the Lord. Knowing that he's not absent, he's not unaware, knowing that he is in control always. Having pointed us to the fact that God is in control, we then get to verses 16 and 17, which, which serve as a, as a reminder for us the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation and by its great might, it cannot rescue. 
And these examples are really the, the, the various things that we are tempted to find our hope in, that we are tempted to find our comfort, to, to look for, for, for salvation, to look for, for, for rescue and for release, whatever our situation may be. These are things that we might be tempted to direct our praise to. Maybe it's in wealth and power. Maybe that's, that's what you're looking to, like a king who has his, his assurance and his wealth and his power. Or perhaps it's in the strength of your abilities, your business or, or financial acumen. Maybe you're tempted to look anywhere and everywhere for help, for rescue, for salvation, but you will not find it. Friends, it can be so easy to, to look to these things, to, to look to the power, to look to, to finances, to look to things that, that are really tangible, things that we feel that we can hold on to or that we can control or that we can direct the, the outcome in the way that we want it to be. Something that we can have access to, something that we can control. But that is not where we are to place our hope. Verses 18 and 19 remind us where we are to place our hope. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Friends, God alone will deliver us because he sees us, because he knows us. That is, if you know him, if you fear him, he is the one who will deliver you, who will sustain you. And once again, that is reason to praise him. Don't waste time looking anywhere else. Look to him. Because as we praise him, as we are reminded of who he is, no matter what happens, he is where we ultimately find our hope. And that brings us to our third and final point this morning, the hope in our praise. The psalm finishes off with this three-verse conclusion. I wonder if you saw that. It began with a, a, a three-verse introduction and now goes to this three-verse conclusion. And having considered these previous 19 verses of who God is and, and why we are to praise Him, we are, we are reminded of why we are to find hope in Him. And we are to respond appropriately. Verses 20 to 22, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in You. As we have praised the Lord, we are reminded that we are to wait for the Lord because He is faithful because he is trustworthy. That is his character, it is unchanging, it is perfect and it is holy. We need not look anywhere else because he alone is our help. He is our shield, our help will come from the Lord, he will protect us. Therefore, let us not find joy anywhere else in him. Let us not put our trust in anything or anyone else but in his Holy name. Let us trust that he will sustain us, that his steadfast love will be upon us. And through every crisis, through every trial in him, we put our hope. And this hope will never, ever disappoint. 
Friends, let us sing a new song to the Lord. As Charles Spurgeon once wrote, let us not present old worn out praise, but put life and soul and heart into every song since we have new mercies every day and see new beauties in the work and the word of our Lord. Now over the last three weeks, we've looked at three different genres of psalms. We've seen the psalm of trust, psalm of lament here. We've seen a psalm of praise this morning. And really, it's almost like we're always in one part of that cycle, either needing to trust God or finding ourselves in a time of, of suffering, of lament, or, or finding ourselves in a time of praise. And how you respond in life depends on whether you truly know God. How you respond to those different things depends on whether you truly know Him. And if you know Him in the way that has been described here today as one who's sovereign, all-knowing, the all-powerful Creator, you can trust Him. By truly knowing Him, when you find yourself in the despair of lament, you can have hope because you know that He is faithful, that He is in control, and that He works all things according to His perfect character. And as we start to have this big picture of who God is, of what He's done, of why He is praiseworthy, friends, that leads us to praise and to worship. But the only way you can get to know Him is through Christ. As I mentioned at the start of the sermon, it is through Christ that we can come to the Father. It is through His sacrifice that we have access and that is what we are reminding ourselves of. That is what we are reminding each other of as we celebrate communion this morning. Communion is meant to be a visual display of the good news of Jesus. The, breads, the blood signifying the perfect life of Christ. The cup symbolizing his blood that was shed to save us. And what we're doing, what we're going to be doing in just a moment is significant in many ways. It's a, it's, it's a memorial, it's a remembrance of Christ's death, and it also has spiritual significance. As we partake today, this is a reminder of Christ's presence among his people and our unity in him. Our unity with believers from all times and our unity with each other as fellow church members. In 1 Corinthians, Paul rebukes the church in Corinth for the divisions. Why this was such a big deal is because we as Christians are all made to be partakers of the same body. And that day the Corinthians were experiencing sickness and even death because they were taking communion while harboring sin and bringing division into the church. Redeemer Church, we are brothers and sisters, members of one body. And as we now approach the Lord's table, we're reminded that we are forever united by the blood of Christ. We have the same God, the same Savior, the same sacrifice, one Christ, one body, one church. Let us approach the Lord's table today in love, in unity, and with hearts that are, are praising God for what He's done. But also remembering Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11, whoever eats the bread or drinks... If it eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner 
will be guilty against sinning the body and blood, sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment upon himself. If you have repented of your sins and been baptized, if you believe in the same gospel that you've heard preached here today, friends, we invite you to participate and enjoy, the, enjoy this meal with us. If not, if you have not yet turned and put your faith and trust in Christ, if you do not yet know who this God is that we've spoken about this morning, let me encourage you to let the bread and the cup pass you by. Come and speak to, to someone if you do have questions about this. If you do profess faith in Jesus and are joined to his church but are engaging in unrepentant sin, then we also encourage you to let the bread and the cup pass you by. Scripture warns that there are severe consequences for those who take this meal, which symbolizes our unity in Christ, while at the same time holding on to sin that divides you from the, from the body. Use this time instead to repent of your sin. If you need to be reconciled to a brother or sister, again, let the bread and the cup pass you by and go and seek and be reconciled to that person first. And then next month when we celebrate communion again, come and partake. Now before we take part, let us take a, a moment to reflect on this past week, to reflect on our lives, to, to remember what Christ has done and see if we might partake of this meal in a worthy way manner. Let us turn to the Lord in prayer. as the musicians and the servers come up front. Father, we come before you and are reminded of who you are this morning, reminded that you are creator, that you are Lord, that you are redeemer. We ask that you would prepare our hearts now to be joined together with you in one spirit. Let the bread and the cup be nourishing to our souls today. Would the cross of Christ be to us the wisdom of God and may it draw our community close to you and close to one another and may it result in your praise, praise that you alone are worthy of. Father, would Jesus Christ, through whom we have access to you, be at the center of all that we do. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.